Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I'm Greta Johnson. And today we are talking with the 22nd Poet Laureate of the United States, Tracy K. Smith. Tracy is the author of several volumes of poetry, including one that won the Pulitzer Prize in 2011 called Life on Mars, that's inspired in part by the fact that her dad worked on the Hubble Space Telescope. It also has a little something to do with David Bowie. Tracy has also written a memoir, and she's working on a libretto for an opera. We'll talk to Tracy about all that and her obsession with near-death experiences. And we'll also talk to her about how her mission as Poet Laureate is to make poetry as accessible as possible across the United States, including rural. America. She's all about making sure that poetry can be like a daily normal act, which I think is so great because so often we think of poetry as this like super fancy hyper literary thing that's like not super easy to just like dip into for a minute and enjoy and then move on with your day. Yeah, no, I'm afraid of poetry. (laughs) I'm poetry phobic. Tell me more. I'm poetry phobic. I'm not proud of the fact that I'm poetry phobic, but I think that probably the primary reason I've never gone through with applying for an MFA program, even though I'm really interested in writing, is that all of the course lists include poetry classes, and I'm a scared of poetry. Or at least I was, until I heard Tracy K. Smith explain that it doesn't have to be scary, and that she can find poetry in all sorts of places, even in the number one song in the summer. She can find poetry in Justin Bieber. Tracy K. Smith, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you. So you're about to be the 22nd Poet Laureate of the United States. Tell me, what does that job actually mean? (laughs) The job description is you give a reading in the fall, you give a lecture in the spring, and in between that time, if there is a project you'd like to do, great. And if not, then think of ways that you might... uh, I guess, make citizens more aware of poetry uh, more informally. I think the poets, laureate that I remember, the ones who had really visible projects, like Robert Pinsky had the favorite poem project, where Mm. I remember watching videos of people from all walks of life reciting the poems that they had lived with, loving for years and years. And um, I'm thinking it might be nice to codify a plan, you know, to say these are the places that are interested in hosting events and this is what we'll do there, maybe even over the course of more than one visit. So it sounds like you really want to get out there. I do. I have this real curiosity about what the conversations that I'm used to having in classrooms at Princeton or, you know, on panels at literary festivals, conversations about craft, but also about what what poetry makes us recognize about ourselves and about the world. I'd like to have that conversation in other places and with people who may not have interlocutors um, to talk about, you know, these Mm -hmm. questions and feelings. So I guess on one level, I'm thinking, oh, it'll be great to bring poets and poetry to places where 
it might not be happening all the time. But what I'm really excited about is hearing these other perspectives about literature and thinking about how poems that I've lived loving speak to a different sense of, of experience from the one that, that I know is familiar. For people who aren't familiar with the Poet Laureate, how do you, this, this is not like a job that you submit an application for, right? Right. It's one of those mysterious things that (laughs) culminates in a phone call that you're not expecting. A falling star Um, (laughs) drops in your backyard and that's how you know. Yeah. I now know that it's the librarian of Congress Mm -hmm. um, who makes the decision. And uh, the current librarian of Congress is Dr. Carla Hayden, who has been a librarian. She's the first librarian of Congress who's actually been a librarian as part of her career. She worked in Baltimore, I believe. And I think one of the things that she's bringing from that perspective to this national position is a real interest in literacy, an interest in making readers of people who are very young and instilling the sense of love of the written word across a lifetime and also bringing the amazing resources of the Library of Congress mm-hmm. to the vast public, even those people who don't have the proximity to the actual place. So she's digitizing a lot of the materials and, and so forth. So at what point did you decide to make this a career and call yourself a poet? Do you remember, like, was there a precise moment or was it something that was always sort of in your life in osmosis anyway? Uh, Well, the short answer is there was a precise moment. I remember it very clearly. But I think that leading up to that, language was something that was really important to me. And the voices that I had encountered in books were powerful for me. I felt like I carried them with me. But I'm thinking of the year when I was a sophomore in college. I had been working with the Darkroom Collective, um, which was a group of young black writers who were committed to meeting all of their literary heroes. Mm. And they had formed this collective after the death of James Baldwin. Oh, and wow. um, just out of that sense of bereavement, not only it, you know having lost this giant of the conscience, but also the fact that this was a living person that they very well could have reached out to and perhaps, you know, met. And so they decided to start a reading series that would invite these legends into a space to read and talk about their work. I came to the dark room about a decade and a half or maybe maybe a little bit less after it was formed. And um, I was a, an undergrad at Harvard. And I remember I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I hadn't shown anyone anything, and I hadn't even written very much, but I I liked the way that these people were talking about poetry. I liked this sense, again, of, like, accessibility that they were claiming. Like, not only are are these, you know, texts, things that they feel comfortable with reading, talking about, and emulating in their own work, but the people who wrote the books were also people they felt completely comfortable reaching out to. And that was really impressive to Mm -hmm. me. I was 19 or 20, and I didn't feel like I had that sense of agency. So I remember I was doing lighting for those readings for a season before I took my first poetry workshop and started showing poems to people. And it was around that time that I said, I'm going to give my life to this, you know, at 20 or 19. That seems like such a an unfathomable wish. I didn't even know <laughs> what my life was at that point or what I expected it to become. But I knew that thinking closely about experience in vivid language made me feel like I had a little bit more control 
and it made me feel like the world was something that I could slow down and begin to comprehend. Mm, wow. I remember telling my roommate one Saturday night when she wanted to know why I wasn't going out to the, this party, saying, I'm a poet. I, I've got to stay home and work on my poems and feeling suddenly like I believed that to be true. There is a greater mission for me here, and it is not to go to that party. <laughs> <laughs> right. What are some of the childhood experiences that you think have really heavily informed your poetry? I mean, the first one that comes to mind for me is is your dad working at Hubble. You know, it's funny. I was about eight or nine years old when he took that job, and I had no idea what he did or what it was for. I remembered him talking about it, but I couldn't really imagine such a thing. You know, I remembered him saying, this is going to show us how the universe was born. We'll see farther into space than ever before. And that just seemed so abstract to me. And it seemed like adult talk. And I liked (laughs) going to the company picnics. That's what I really remember about that job was going to those picnics in the summertime. Honestly, it wasn't until after my father died that I really started thinking about the significance of that work that he had contributed to. You know, I remember seeing those first images in the early 90s when he was still alive and thinking, okay. But after, I think it was really after having surrendered him to the cosmos that Mm. it felt real to me. Maybe that articulation of the afterlife suggests that his imagination and his view of space got inside me somehow. But I I believed that he was out there among, you know, these nebulae that um, he was so excited about. Do you think of poets as philosophers? I love that question. I think I absolutely believe that when we as poets can be quiet and let our egos kind of sit out for a little while, I think we are good uh, like almost vessels for some kind of ambient philosophy or some kind of practical philosophy. That's what I'm I'm hoping for when I write a poem, that's something that's useful to life and being might come out as almost as if by magic through my own vocabulary and my own limited imagination. I know when I was very young, I remember coming home from school and telling my brother, I learned about this thing and I want to be it. It's called a philosopher king. And (laughs) you you get to sit around and think, you write poetry and you try and think about philosophy and what it means to be just and be, be alive and be fair. And my brother said, oh, yeah, that is a real thing, but people aren't that anymore. There aren't philosopher kings. And I I was really disappointed. And every now and then still, uh, when I'm feeling very grateful for my job, (laughs) grateful that I get to do a lot of the things I just described, Mm -hmm. I think, okay, well, maybe maybe the new um, title for that position is poet. Although, you know, there's not a great kingdom or or a great sense of dominion that comes with (laughs) being a poet, but there is that, that sense of quiet and, you know, unmolested contemplativeness. In just a minute, we'll talk to Tracy about all the places poetry can live, including maybe, just maybe, Billboard's number one summer hit. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen 
as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. So, Tracy, one thing we thought a lot about as we were figuring out what to talk to you about is the idea that when it comes to making poetry accessible, maybe it's about expanding our definitions of poetry, which, of course, led us to Justin Bieber. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, you know, and I'm curious to see what you think about this theory. But it seems to me that if we think of poetry as existing in all sorts of different places, like a pop song or an opera libretto, Or, you know, in rural America or the Library of Congress or the Hubble Telescope, you know, David Bowie. Like, it seems to me that these are all, in some essence, poems. Do you disagree with that notion? I like what you're saying because I think it suggests that poetry is out there in the world and we can be receptive to it and we can be the beneficiaries of whatever the poetic impulse creates. Mm -hmm. I believe that. You know, I sometimes find myself just looking and seeing, you know, a particular bit of light on a, you know, a sidewalk and thinking there's feeling that lives in in this thing I just saw. Mm. That's poetic, you know, and I'm not going to go home and try and turn it into a poem, but I'm, I'm grateful for this moment of quiet and this moment of, I guess, lyric sensibility or sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. I think you can find it to varying degrees in every context. Now, Justin Bieber is the big step, but I'm excited to, you know, to, to say, yes, you're right. Um, there, there is something. What else is poetry? It's a, a really robust investment in experience. And it's a certain willingness to be carried away. And it's the, I think, ultimately, it's the wish to be changed by the things that we encounter. And I think that can happen. In fact, it has to happen when we're not expecting it. It is. Yes. You have to just let it come, I think. So, yeah, we, we decided we would take the Bieber Poetry Challenge, if you will. Okay. And our idea is, OK, if poetry could be in pop music, let's take a look at our number one billboard hit at the moment and see if we can find any poetry in this billboard Hot 100 song, which is called Despacito, and it's by Luis Fonsi and Daddy Yankee featuring Justin Bieber. Let's listen to a little bit of it. Come and move that in my direction. Thankful for that. It's such a blessing, yeah. Turn every situation into heaven, yeah. Oh, you are my sunrise on the darkest day. Got me feeling some kind of way Make me want to savor every moment Slowly, slowly You fit me, tell her, may love how you put it on Got the only key, know how to turn it on The way you never lie, my ear, the only words I want to hear Baby, take it slow so we can last long Tú eres el imán y yo soy el metal Me voy acercando y voy armando el plan Solo con pensarlo se acelera el pulso So, Tracy, have you heard this song before today? I have not. Yeah, me neither. Our producer knows it very well. I was like, no, no, not familiar with this one. (laughs) You know, it's so funny when you think about 
what the voice can do and what we have to render in other ways when you're writing just for the page. Mm. And so you can hear like the exhilaration, you can hear the passionate desire, you can hear the appetite and energy in the voice that is, you know, accompanying the words in a way. That's doing a lot of the work. I think that's a really good point. I think it is doing a lot of the work because when you look at these words on a page. <laughs> the words aren't, aren't necessarily um, hard pressed to surprise us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we have come on over in my direction. So thankful for that. It's such a blessing, which I guess they rhyme. So that's something. Yeah. And there's delight in rhyme. You know, there's delight in being made to notice there's a relationship between words and, um, you know, it creates a sense of harmony and a sense of recognition. And then, of course, when the rhyme is surprising, that's another really fun thing. So I think direction, blessing and heaven here are kind of just getting us geared up to move into something. It's like this pulse that says, come on, let's just trust me here. Let's go forward. Oh, I like that. OK, so what's next? Well, I I want to laugh when I see got me feeling some kind of way. You know, it's like it's a kind of colloquial speech that we say, oh, right. Yeah. But it's really just someone who said, I'm not going to bother to try and narrow down what I, <laughs> what the feeling is. It's just, you know, it's something. It's some kind of way. I'm not sure what it is. Yeah, it's bold. It's bold. And I think it's it's also sort of transparent. It's like I, I, I'm feeling something and, and let me just let me go further, you know, <laughs> stick uh-huh, with me here. Uh-huh. Then a few phrases down. So sometimes when my students will use a phrase that's very familiar, perhaps bordering on cliche, I'll say, all right, it's not going to satisfy much to see this thing in a poem that we throw around all the time. And it might also prevent us from paying close attention. So on your way to thinking of an alternative, the first stop might be to say, can you tamper with this familiar gesture? Hmm. So that what we think we're going to hear isn't what we end up hearing. And that can be the first step toward, you know, making a line that's not so good into a line that's okay. So a few lines down, I see you fit me tailor made. Love how you put it on. You fit me tailor made. Love how you put it on. Got the only key know how to turn it on. And I hear the absence of the word glove when I go from fit tailor made to love. Oh, that's kind of cool. Maybe he chose against, you know, the very literal thing of you fit me like a glove and he's kind of leaping a little bit past that idea. Interesting. Well, yeah, I almost thought you were going to say the same thing actually about the next line after that, which is got the only key, know how to turn it on. Because normally when I think of keys, I think of unlocking things. Yeah, I think you're right. I think those two lines are doing kind of like a parallel thing. They're almost like acknowledging the automatic image and then they're finding a way to kind of push past it somehow. So yeah, the key isn't turning. It's, you know, someone is being turned on or something is being turned on. I think it's fair to assume someone is being turned on in this context. (laughs) Yeah, I think this song is pretty um, brazen. Yes, especially with the next couple of lines, the way you nibble on my ear, the only words I want to hear, baby, take it slow so we can last long. Yeah, that is a, a... clear invitation to passion. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a good way of putting that. Your way with words, Tracy. (laughs) So do you speak Spanish? I do. I used to speak it quite well, and now I I speak it all right, I guess. But I can understand the song, and I can appreciate some of the things that are happening in the language. Yeah, Um, what's happening? The next couple lines down. 
Tú eres el imán y yo soy el metal. Me voy acercando y voy armando el plan. Um, so, tú eres el imán y yo soy el, el metal. You are the magnet and I'm the metal. Ooh. I'll just do the English because my accent is so terrible now. So I'm getting closer to you and I'm devising a plan. So oh. acercando and armando kind of rhyme. Mm -hmm. I like the sense that this person is being pulled almost beyond his control. And even in that state of helplessness, he's working on something. He's, he's devising scheming. a plan. <laughs> yeah. So there's a, a different kind of agency that he finds. And then in the next line down, all I need to do is think of you and my pulse gets faster, my mm. pulse accelerates. So mm -hmm. acelera, to accelerate. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of, it's not quite rhyme, but there's this music that acercando and acelerar. acelerar. God, forgive me. <laughs> but those two words, I think, are, they're married to each other in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this poem is, I mean, this poem, this song, huh. um, and the poetry that lives within it is fun. <laughs> what I like further down in the song is the way that the speaker is willing in this, like, kind of frantic quest to get this woman to just be with him mm -hmm. to say, okay, I'm going to give you the agency for a little while. I want to watch your hair dance. So it's like, I just want to see all of the power that, that you have. I don't even need to watch you dance, just your hair. Mm. Or I want to be your rhythm. You know, I, I don't need to be me. I just will be the rhythm that's making your hair dance. And then, you know, further down in the poem, that kind of sense of surrender of agency gets turned around and he's telling her all the things he wants to do <laughs> to and with her. So, yeah, the, the song is... I guess doing what a lot of love poetry does, or yeah, really just coming up with an unignorable and hopefully undeniable plea for love. That's a nice way of looking at it. <laughs> Thank you for your flexibility also in considering Justin Bieber as poetry. I think that's very oh. gracious of you. <laughs> it's my pleasure. I mean, before our conversation, would you have considered pop music as poetry? I wonder partly, you know, thinking about Bob Dylan having won the Nobel Prize. I mean, this is something that is sort of a part of conversation happening around poetry, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, my last book is called Life on Mars, which is a flagrant, you know, act of theft <laughs> from David Bowie. So, yeah, I do. I think that, you know, there are pop musicians who I think are poets. I think Dylan is one. I think Paul Simon is one. Mm -hmm. And then there are those, like you described, those kind of moments of poetic impulse that break through sometimes when we're really not expecting it. But I love the, you know, the relationship between poetry and song is something that we remind ourselves of every time we say, oh, this is a lyric poem or even like, oh, that's very mm -hmm. lyrical. Mm -hmm. um, we're thinking about song. And as poems have moved from an oral tradition to something that is often now written, we forget that or we forget to remind ourselves that really actively that these two forms were once married. Coming up, we're going to talk with Tracy about the weird thing she is obsessed with lately. It has to do with dying, but not quite. What's the Princess Bride quote? Mostly dead is slightly alive. Yes, exactly. Tracy, it is time now 
to talk about near-death experiences. <laughs> oh, good. I thought you'd never ask. No, we're here. <laughs> we're here now. So this was sort of the original <laughs> pitch of this conversation was we wanted to know what it was that you were really obsessed with. And you wrote back and said near-death experience narratives. And I was like, okay, this is a very interesting one. So I'm curious, what exactly do you mean by near-death experience narratives? Okay, I want to start by telling a little story. (laughs) Okay. When I was first doing some readings from Life on Mars like six years ago, I I read in Connecticut and the host had a dinner in his home before the reading. And he said, you know, your book is really interested in death and the afterlife and space. I bet you would be really interested in near-death experiences like and I, I said, what, what do you mean? And he said, well, when I was a grad student, I made some money by transcribing the narratives of people who had had near-death experiences. You know, There are a number of studies, I guess, that have been going on for decades trying to get a sense of what these various experiences have in common. Maybe it's almost a way of like codifying <laughs> the afterlife, if that's possible, right. or determining what it is either within the brain or the spirit that we encounter when we leave our bodies. And it's really interesting. I, I kind of kept that suggestion in my head for a long time. And it was really over this past spring, I was on sabbatical from teaching, I was working on new poems, and I also found myself veering away from reading the news toward this other source of information. And I said, you know, I wonder if I can find these now online. And I did. I found that not only are there thousands of them online, but I I found myself really compelled. There are a lot of these common strains, right? There's a moment where the person realizes that he or she is dead. So there's this dissociative moment. And um, usually a near-death experience also comes after something traumatic, an Mm -hmm. accident or something that goes wrong in the operating room. And the person is pulled out of that sense of trauma into this kind of almost like a philosophical state, like, where am I that I am me looking at me? And I don't feel what I think I should feel. I'm just neutral. Hmm. You know, maybe as somebody who's an artist, that's just such an enticing proposition to imagine that it's really true that we can get beyond ourselves, you know, which is what you're really trying to do when you're making art. You're trying to get beyond your own uh, limitations and beyond your own perspective and see if you can get to something that will genuinely amount to some sort of revelation. Hmm. But there are all kinds of things that happen in these stories. Time goes away. As a parent of young children, I I think I get excited every time I see that (laughs) time, which I feel like I'm always trying to beg my children to believe is actually real. (laughs) Turns out it's not. (laughs) Like, they're right. Um, What else? I guess the huge two things that we think of when we think of the afterlife are that that light that people say they can go toward or go into. And then I guess... There are these opportunities, and they seem different from person to person, but to observe your life. So you're already outside of yourself, but somehow your life has been cataloged, (laughs) and you can observe it and, and learn from it. One thing that I love about that is that every single person who makes it back from one of these experiences says, what I felt was real. It was realer than anything else I've ever felt, and the only thing that matters in this ultimate 
real place is love. Love is the only currency there. And everything that we have done or that we're in that process of doing that is not rooted in love is going to be undone. I love the simplicity of that tremendous charge. You know, you are here to do one thing and one thing only. Man, that's beautiful. It's so important and good, too. Yeah. So, Tracy, we like to do a thing on our podcast where we ask our guests to assign our listeners homework. Hmm. So I am thinking of uh, an experience I had a few months back, and I was in my car and I was looking at a woman walking down the street And something about what she seemed to be feeling, it almost just invaded my car. She was burdened by something. Mm -hmm. The look on her face was just grim. So I went home, and I kind of wanted to live with this sight again, and I wrote a poem. What I found myself doing for most of the poem was describing her in a really unapologetic and, like, not cosmetically, you know, like a flattering way. You know, she looks like this squat old machine. She's chugging along. She's mm-hmm. burdened down the tracks on her brow. And, and then I said, why am I doing this? Why have I sunken into this really sort of like unforgiving gaze? And then I said, oh, it's because I see myself. I know her. Mm-hmm. I know what she's feeling, and it's invading my car because it's something that lives with me sometimes too. And so the work of that poem was to speak in a way that claims some of that woman's despair. Mm-hmm. Can I read you the last few lines of that poem? Oh my gosh, please. I am you, one day out of five, tired, empty, hating what I carry, but afraid to lay it down, stingy, angry, doing violence to others by the sheer freight of my gloom, halfway home, wanting to stop, to quit, but keeping going mostly out of spite. (laughs) I laugh because it's so real. (laughs) (laughs) So this is kind of what I think poems do. They point to what is un- deniable sometimes, unavoidable, and they erase the distance between the self and that thing. And when the poem is looking at something that's unattractive, something that is wrong, you know, now I'm moving away from a person, but even to the world, that erasure of distance can be very chastening. Mm -hmm. So my assignment to listeners is to do that kind of work in a moment of either writing or meditation where you're looking deeply at something that's not pretty, where after giving everything to building that thing in language or in your imagination, you do that hard job of saying, but there's no distance between me and it. Let me tell you why that's true. That's some pretty excellent homework from Poet Laureate Tracy K. Smith. Not thinking of other things as having so much distance from you seems like good advice. I bet we would find that in practice in her new poems called Wade in the Water that's coming out in 2018. I really recommend Life on Mars. I actually did read some of these poems because as much as I fear poetry, I love space. And so my love of space won out. And they're really lovely and 
They make you think about the infinite nature of things in a way that is kind of helpful and maybe a good way to, you know, reflect on that solar eclipse that we were all so obsessed with. (laughs) There you go. The show is produced by us, Greta Johnson, and Trisha Bobita with Candace Mattel. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer. And our intern is B. Aldrich. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on NPR One, or listen in the WBEZ app. You know what else is super helpful is if you leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts, which Nerdette from Wyoming did recently. Thank you, Nerdette from Wyoming. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We are at Nerdette Podcast all over the internet. Our theme music is by Pottington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.